I want to turn this towards friendship and towards community, sangha. And he had these five friends before he was enlightened, before the Buddha came to awakening, that was practicing asceticism. Uh, They were off in the forest and they were together sort of uh, encouraging each other to, to do like the most radical austerities and kind of torturing their bodies and this whole perspective that says, this body creates suffering, what if we deny all of its desires? Because right? desire seems to be part of the problem here, so let's not eat food, let's not wear clothes, let's not give these bodies any pleasure at all. Let's torture our bodies. And they did that for years. And so, oh, actually this doesn't end suffering. <laughs> Go figure. It didn't work. And then finds mindfulness, comes to awakening. And when he decides to teach the path to awakening, first he teaches to his five ascetic friends. And all five of them become arahants. They understand, as the Buddha explains, the middle path between the extreme austerity and the total indulgence. He said, this is a middle path. And they all become arahants, which means fully awakened beings. They, they hear the Dharma, they practice the Dharma, they embody the Dharma, they become awakened. But if, when you, it doesn't seem like they become his best friends. And so the Buddha goes on and he teaches thousands and thousands of people and starts this movement. And, you know, there's the story in the fire sermon that I gave of, a few weeks ago where like hundreds and hundreds of matted hair, fire-worshipping ascetics come and they're like the, the first sangha is this like thousands, hundreds of of um, fire worshippers who then hear the Dharma, apply the Dharma, and, and commit to it and become the Sangha. But I was looking at the suttas this week to see, okay, now what happens next? And a couple of things happen next. One is that um, a king meets the Buddha, King Bimbasara, meets the Buddha and it feels so inspired and becomes a student becomes a um, part of the community and he and he says to, to the Buddha like can I offer you a home can I give you a place to practice you guys are living homeless in the woods and wandering from place to place would it be suitable if I gave you this bamboo grove okay, that you guys can live in you can set up a monastery and you can you can be here and the Buddha says yes it's totally suitable your generosity is appropriate it is kind it is good and our community will accept your generosity and and so uh, this king who becomes a a major benefactor this wealthy king becomes a benefactor and says i want to provide this place for the community to practice this is about five years into the buddha's awakening and his teaching somewhere in the first seven years and then there's this story of um, these two friends who made a commitment to each other. and they had, they, Before they found Buddhism, they made a commitment. They said, we want to wake up in this lifetime. We want to end suffering. We want to reach whatever kind of wisdom we can reach. And if either of us find the, what was kind of the true Dharma, the truth, first, uh, let's make a commitment to tell the other one about it. We're going to study, we're going to take all of the yoga workshops we can at Esalen, and 
we're going to, you know, we're going to just go for it. And whoever finds, like, something that's really transformative, make sure, let's, let's commit to telling each other, let's share that with each other. That's part of our, our vow of our friendship. And they're studying, they're, at this point, they're together studying with a teacher, and they see a Buddhist monk. And, you know, this is early in Buddhism's development in, in India. And they see somebody in the orange robes, and he's walking, and he's holding his, bow, his bowl, and he's going on alms round. He's going into the village to beg for his meal. And these two guys see him, and they say, that guy is his... Uh, it's, it says in the sutta something like, his complexion is bright. <laughs> he's clear. He looks peaceful. Like it... You know that sometimes when you meet somebody, you're just like, what's, what's, what is that person on? <laughs> I want some of that shit. What kind of green smoothies have you been chugging? <laughs> or, you know, meditation are you doing? Or what's, what's going on? And so they say they just feel inspired just by seeing this person, the way they're mindfully walking. Something about it inspires them. And so then they wait for him to finish his alms around. And they approach him. And uh, they say, tell us, you know, who's your teacher? What teaching are you following? And he gives them very, he says, I will. He says, I don't understand the Dharma really well enough to give you full instructions. I'm fairly new to Buddhism myself. But I'll give you the core of what I understand, of what my teacher, the Buddha, Gautama, uh, teaches. And he gives them a very simple teaching. He says, all uh, conditioned phenomena is impermanent. Basically, that's it. He says more. He, he says, <laughs> and the cause of suffering, what do you, how do you hear it? Well, he says, when there is this, yep. there is that. Yep. So all actions have repercussions, and if you take an action, there will be a karmic residue. Like a short dependent origination. Yes, exactly. Like and when there's not this, there won't be that. Yep. So if you refrain from acting... Everything's, everything's mm-hmm. impermanent. And if you cling to it, you will suffer. Yes. And if you don't cling to it, you will not suffer, is basically what he says mm. in, in a kind of shorthand to them. Everything is arising and passing, and when we meet the impermanent with clinging, this will happen, you will suffer. But if you meet the experience with a, right now it's like this, without clinging to it, even if it's unpleasant, he says, then you won't suffer. You'll just experience the unpleasant emotion or sensation. And, and so these two guys, Sariputta and Moggallana, they get it. They're just like, okay, this makes sense. It's practical. I want to learn how to not suffer. My teacher's teaching me how to like, just ignore everything. Just concentrate it all away, not turn towards it and see the impermanence of it. My teacher is teaching me that you'll have bliss if you just ignore your mind. And this teacher is saying, actually, turn towards your mind. And that, that made sense to Sariputta and uh, Moggallana. So Sariputta and Moggallana, they have a teacher, but they're kind of the senior, and there's 250 students in this community. And so they decide, we're going. And they decide, we should tell everyone else that we're going and let them know if they want to come, they can come, but we're going to go meet the Buddha. 
And they go back and forth. There's a little kind of conversation about, you know, should we just go? Is that responsible? Or should we share it? Is it generous to say this is what we're doing? You're welcome to come with us. Is this a betrayal of the guy that's been teaching us yoga all week or month or whatever it is? And they, they decide, you know, we're going to go. And we're going to tell everybody. But the guy, the Buddhist monk that they had met, do you remember his name? Oh, no. You mean the guy who taught, gave them a the, the first, short... Yeah. yeah. No. It's like a CG or something like that. I forget his name. But um, he says to Sariputan Mogalana, he says, you know what? Let's not take them. Let's stay here and we'll be the teachers. The three of us will lead this community. We'll teach them about impermanence. And Mogalana and Sariputta say, no, like, we're going to go learn from the master. And three times he goes back and forth and the guy says, let's not, let's like, we can be gurus. Let's not tell them shit. Let's like, let's just, we'll teach. We'll pretend like we made this shit up. Get a huge thing going up at Esalen. It'll be amazing. Um, you know, we'll start a center in Venice. It'll be killer. Don't, don't tell anybody. Post it on Instagram. Say you made it up. And these guys say, no, we really want, we, are, we really want to learn everything that we can learn. We're going to study with this person. And they go, and the 250 people go with them. And there's this strange thing, very, a little bit religious, that says they left, and as they left, the guy that wanted to keep the power started vomiting blood and died. <laughs> This is a sort of instant karma was death. <laughs> Started something like that, vomiting blood. Mm-hmm. Blood was, and then he just sit. He's done. And as Sariputta and Mogalana come to the Buddha, there's like this instant recognition they'd never met before. But the Buddha just uh, like welcomes them, and says, you know. Um, I forget exactly what he says, but there's just this recognition. And they end up being these three, and in the suttas they're called the two chief disciples, like the Buddha's favorite. Now, the Buddha had these other five friends that he had come to, that he taught to first. He already had thousands of students, but there was this recognition with these two guys. And then for the rest of their life. Now, they weren't always together. Because the, the you know, sorry, Putta and Mogalana become enlightened very quickly. As the, all of these stories, people just become enlightened really quickly. It's like, and then they got a Dharma talk, and they were all liberated. <laughs> you know, over the um, this is probably maybe thirty-five years of a relationship that these guys had, uh, the, the Buddha and, and Sariputta and Mogalana. The Buddha dies about forty, forty-five years into his teaching career. They die earlier. And they die earlier. And when one of them dies, <coughs> I forget who it is. It's Sariputta. Sariputta and Ananda first. says, aren't you sad, Buddha? And the Buddha said, no, it's been such a blessing that I've had Sariputta in my life that I feel content. I would have been depressed and mourned, but the Buddha is, you know. Sometimes it's presented as, you know, if you have zero attachment, then grief is a kind of just a normal, like, I feel gratitude for the time we had. But there's another place, and maybe Josh will know where this is. Sometimes I've heard it applied to the Buddha, that um, when one of these three friends, one of them dies first, maybe Sariputta, that the the Sutta says, it feels as though the sun has been extinguished from the earth. 
Maybe that is it Mogalana saying that? I thought No. I've heard this attributed yeah. to the Buddha. I don't know the suttas well enough. Neither of us no. really know it well enough. But that even a fully enlightened being is saying, like, this friendship was so important to me mm. that it feels like I've just lost the light, the sun from the earth. Because this has been like my foundation, my intimacy, my connection. You know, these are the celibates, right? They're not having loving sexual relationships, but the relationships in, uh, in community can become so intimate and so connected. And it's like these were their life partners. They like really lived their lives practicing and in that kind of intimacy. And, um, and they're at death, there is a loss. And maybe sometimes it said, you know, it's just I feel only appreciation. And then sometimes it said, actually, I feel a great sadness, a healthy sense of grief and loss from something that was very precious in my life. So, wanting to point towards... When I was reading that, it was just making me reflect on my friendships and my experience on the path and, and my relationship to my teachers and, uh, and being a teacher and then relationships with, with Josh of, uh, you know, 15 years ago, Josh showed up at a class I was teaching in New York City and then asked all of the hardest questions every week. Just the, the most cantankerous student that you could get. Irritated. So, so then when I was leaving New York, I was like, you're taking over. <laughs> you're, you're the one that knows all of this stuff better than I do, as far as the suttas. And uh, I was like, you know, you and, and Craig are taking over. And I think Josh was saying he reflected a little bit, and we'll reflect together on, on this process of a spiritual friendship. Um, and of course in the sutta... The Buddha's always the hierarchy. You know, he's the founder, he's the, he's the Buddha. But he talks about Sariputta and Moggallana as though like, we're really peers. And like an enlightened being is an enlightened being. And, um, you know, for us unenlightened beings, navigating long-term friendships, navigating uh, changes... And also this process that I, I've gone through over and over, like all of the teachers at Against the Stream at one point were my students, and now I'm like, we're peers. And they're like, okay, we're peers, but you're still my teacher, so you know, there's still this individuation that has to happen in order to say, like, actually, I don't want to be your teacher anymore. I want to be, I want us to have a, a peer friendship. And this question of, is it possible? So I see that in my own life, and then I see it with my teachers, Jack Cornfield, and some of my other teachers, where it's like, no, like I have, there, there's that pedestal, and then, but, oh, now we teach together, and Jack wants to say, like, no, like we're, we're colleagues now, I'm not your teacher anymore. Like, but I still project on you so much. You're still dad. <laughs> you know, I was 19, I showed up at your retreat. You'll always be my dad. Even though we're trying to be colleagues. Mm. Um, so we're reflecting on that, and, and Josh had some very interesting... I'll say a couple more things and then ask him to bring in some perspectives, because part of my question for me, for all of us, is 
uh, about sustaining friendships and about how friendships change over the years. And especially when we get interested in practice and how rare it is for your non-Dharma friends, your non-practice friends to actually come with you. Sometimes they do. I haven't had many of my early life friends that came to the Dharma and stayed in the Dharma, but I've had a couple. Um, And then the friendships that we make here, how over the decades, if you hang around and they change and the conflicts happen and the, uh, you know, divorces happen and the breakups happen and the, the going different, the individuation sometimes happen or the... I'm more interested in this jhanic practice and, you know, you're, you're kind of over in the mindfulness or I'm going to go study Tibetan Buddhism, I'm tired of the Theravada or, you know, all of those kind of developments that happen in, in, even in spiritual community friendships. I was asking uh, Josh, I know that he and... Uh, George Haas, you know, studying a lot of the psychological and and sociological things about this this view that we would have a certain amount of very close friends and a certain amount of kind of uh, larger, like, community associations and then then the larger community. So, like, here there's, I don't know how many people are in here, 100 and something, 140 or something. So like you would like if you're in a um, intimate relationship, you would have your like your number one, your A, your partner, and then maybe if if this were your community of the hundred and forty, fifty people in here, you'd have like five five people that were like these are my closest. You explain it. You're better at it. You, just, you want me to dip in now? Yeah, jump in. That was awesome. It's, uh, <laughs> it's always an extreme personal honor for me to be sitting next to this guy. He trained me as a teacher. He encouraged me. I didn't want to be a teacher. He sort of said, you have uh, something that would uh, be worth sharing with other people. And for the first uh, dozen times I spoke with no I'd always have to inch my chair forward so I could never see his facial expressions because he just made me too fucking nervous (laughs) and Noah doesn't I mean he's a great poker player but he doesn't have a poker face like when he's fucking bored with what you're saying you can immediately tell I'd be like you know uh yeah, so just going to jump in and uh, just wing some ideas. Human beings are a, we're pack animals. We um, have been shaped by natural selection and evolution to uh, survive by bonding. That's our great gift. We don't, when we're startled or are under threat, we don't have wings to fly away. We don't scurry into holes and that we can dig quickly. We don't jump into water and swim away with any great alacrity are we can't outrun most of our predators we can't we don't have shells to protect ourselves or claws so our great gift as a species uh, we have been shaped over the course of 1.8 million years 
of uh, from Homo erectus to now to essentially bond. And for the vast bulk of human history, that bonding occurred in what's called hunter-gatherer collectives, where you would spend your entire life in a small group of about six to ten adults, and your entire survival was dependent upon you managing those relationships and developing strong affiliations where you could trust that those other people had their your back if you went out and co didn't collect any food any berries any dead animals then others would share their resources with you that they would protect you when you were injured and so forth so the most important core drive that we all have is to connect and I use the term attach so if you think that in Buddhism there's no such a thing as attachment, that's wrong. There's no such thing as clinging, but attachment the Buddha taught all the time. In fact, uh, connection, the connection <laughs> attachment for me, uh, what that means is uh, if you look at the prerequisites for spiritual practice the Buddha listed in the numbered discourses, he says before you meditate, before you do anything else, you secure Kalyanamita, wise spiritual friends. And in other suttas, he says, you practice generosity and bonding. Um, human beings connect in two principal ways. We have two different dedicated circuits in our brain that build these affiliations. The first circuit is in your right orbital frontal, and it's the circuit that allows you to connect with your parents it primes you as to, in early childhood as to who you'll be attracted to in your adult life, how you will relate to important romantic figures in your life, whether you will expect love or expect abandonment and so forth. But there's a second also uh, a circuit in the, the cingulate, according to Lieberman, bilateral, which means both sides of the brain, and that's the tribal affiliation circuits. And so that's what probably is the underlying circuits to karma. Uh, there are emotions associated with both kinds of attachment. The attachment with one other person, that's your primary attachment, and then there are, there are emotions that govern your attachment with a group. Primary attachments are governed by emotions like jealousy, love, uh, uh, sadness and grief when we lose an attachment figure and so forth. Our tribal emotions are things like pride and shame and contentment, fulfillment and discontentment. When you are well connected to a large group, a tribe, which in early hunter-gatherer societies would be the collectives of different small groups that would gather a couple of times each year, and you did something that was a benefit to other members in your group, you would feel pride, and you would be singled out by your group, and you would be awarded some kind of status. So when we do feel we've acted in a pro-tribal way, we feel this sense of uplift, fulfillment, and pride in our life. We also need, though, this primary, smaller form of intimate uh, attachments that will help us regulate our emotions, the core primal emotions. So a child connects with its parents not only for protection and for food, 
but the child connects with the parents to have all of its states of being known and understood and to be soothed by the caregiver. So when the child is, is scared or frightened or has soiled itself, the parent soothes the child and thus regulates down the distress. On the other hand, if the child has done something wonderful, developed a new tool, the parent gives appreciation and upregulates the feelings of joy and bonding and happiness. So our emotions are set up to not only create impulses to act on our own survival, but all of our emotions are messages to other people governing how well connected and asking to be co-regulated. There's three levels, basically, of attachments that we can have. The first is what Noah is talking about, the A person. That's the person who you are in a relationship with, the person who you would go to when you feel sick, someone who you would, if you want to have a, uh, a dedicated, lasting, romantic partnership, etc., that person who's your traveling companion. That would be your A person. Then we all have C people, which are a large group, and interesting, you said 140. Dunbar said that if you look across all social systems, across history, across cultures, you'll see that number again and again, about 140, 150. That's, he says the human brain, the human cerebral capabilities are set up specifically so that we could know about 150 different people keep track of their stories, have a vague sense of whether they're friend or foe, and whether we can trust them or not. But what about this B group that Noah was referring to? These are a group of core, deep, important friends that we can go to when our A person isn't available or when we have complaints about our A person. <laughs> and they, these B people can handle any emotional state that we're in and create a safe container to help us regulate our emotions. <laughs> what we need from these B people are exactly the same things we needed from our parents when we were infants. We need attunement, which is somebody who will pay attention. We need proximity, which means someone who will not be shifting, moving away, you know, essentially trying to get out, trying to end the conversation. We need mirroring, which is someone who will subtly, non-verbally express through their facial expressions and their body language and their tone of voice that they get what we're feeling. And we need appreciation for when we develop new tools or when we've gone through something hard, somebody who validates our experience, who says, I get it, I felt sad too, I felt, you know, angry too. So your emotions are no longer felt as abnormal. You're meant, you are made to feel a part of something that other people can understand. And that experience regulates your emotions. And if the problem of capitalism and 21st century America is that it points us away from having be people in our lives. It pushes us towards knowing that 150 people all by social media and by exhausting us with too much work and stress and sending us to the A person to try to get all of our emotional needs by that one person. But 
when I, I work with individuals one-on-one -on -one as well as teaching for a living and virtually everybody I know when I say that number of five people who know what's going on and you could talk to them about just about everything in your life and they will not tell you what to do because having somebody tell you what to do is a subtle form of violence. They're saying, I can't be with your emotional state right now. I need you to change it. I can't deal with your sadness or your fear or your anxiety. We need someone to create a safe, non-judgmental, it's like mindfulness, but from another person. We're getting that safe container. When I tell people that they need those five people, probably 90% of the people I met don't have five people because we've all been subtly over time disconnected from each other and we've all been trained through uh, uh, hegemonic media saturation messages that the way you deal with other people's suffering is by trying to cheer them up or by trying to tell them what to do. So we've lost the art of what was the dominant form of human safety and interpersonal connection through the course of our entire evolution, which was to sit at night after we'd gone out and gathered resources and to tell the story of our lives and to have other people listen, to bond and to build that secure base so that we could go out and then for another day risk our lives foraging. So, that's the crux of what we need to uh, thrive as human beings. We need those core people that we can connect with, that can listen without judgment, mirror, which means show back to us our emotions, and empathize and sympathize, which means say, I get it, I know what you're going through. And it feels like what we are being encouraged to do by taking refuge in Sangha. Like the Buddha understood this, you know, um, Josh has a beautiful way of explaining it from a historical, sociological, psychological perspective. Um, but like with so many things like neuroscience and so many things that now we're like, well, science is proving that the Buddha was right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Who gives a fuck? But yes, mm. the, the science is kind of finally catching up with like, the Buddha was right. We need community. Like the reality is we need each other and we need relationships and it's challenging. And uh, may maybe some of it is exactly what Josh is saying is that our... Our, our modern, postmodern, capitalist, industrialized. It's not as necessary as it was for survival, but it's still how our brains work. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and the Buddha understood this. Like, we actually, we need to be seen. We need to be, um, and, you know, we could go back and forth on attachment or connection. Um, attachment is what they call it in psychology. Uh, I don't want to call it attachment because so much of what the Buddha is teaching is non-attachment. Yeah. And so I think it's a very simple semantic fix to say what we're talking about is connection. How do we connect and sustain connected relationships? And the connection, many of you have seen my, my hand puppet show, which is that, um, you know, attachment is this. It's when you, you, you cling. Mm. And, and the problem with attachment is that we're forgetting impermanence. 
we're forgetting that when we cling to someone, some relationship, and saying like, and you need to stay the same, and always be happy, mm-hmm. <laughs> and never have emotions, please, don't, don't have moods, mm-hmm. you know, and so the attachment often is this lack of acceptance and that subtle violence, mm-hmm. but connection is, I'm going to be here. And I'm going to be here when you're in a bad mood, and I'm going to be here when you're in a good mood, and I'm going to stay connected. But also, I know that that this might change. And there's no clinging to it not changing. And that room, like even in when I I think of the Buddha and his his best (coughs) friends, sometimes they don't see each other for years because the Buddha's off teaching over here, and they're off teaching over there, and they have this huge community. But when they come back together... It's that connection is always there, even though they're not living together all of the time because they're wandering monks Mm. who are off doing their thing. And then they come back together over a period of 35 years, and it's a sustainable connection, loving, supported, compassionate, forgiving. I mean, I feel like forgiveness is the key in relationships in friendships, in, in all relationships. It's, it's not this delusion of, like, you're never going to offend me. Or, I'm, you know, you're never going to do... It's the reality that, actually, I, you'll probably hurt my feelings, I'll probably hurt your feelings. Can we forgive each other? Can we have compassion for where that's coming from in order to sustain the friendship, the relationship, the connection? Mm. There's that quote... Um, that I liked so much. I heard it in a Dharma talk 25 years ago, but I liked it so much that I remembered it. I put it in the, in the Against the Stream book. And it says, uh, Forgiveness is the name of love spoken amongst those of us who love poorly. And that the, the hard truth is, is that we all love poorly. None of us are really good <laughs> at it. And that forgiveness becomes a necessity every day, every hour, each moment, unceasingly. And that this is the reality for the fellowship of the week, for the sangha uh, that we call the human family, that we call friendships, that we call community, that we have to learn to, to have that kind of tolerance and compassion and forgiveness in order to stay connected, even when it's unpleasant, even when it's difficult. One of the areas where I have a subtly different take than Noah is when it comes to forgiveness, because uh, for me, all human emotions are absolutely valid and necessary and are set up by evolution to help us safely connect with others. And so sadness is the way we grieve when we've lost a connection in our life. And anger is an emotion that tells us that we haven't set boundaries in our life to protect ourselves. And very often, while forgiveness is absolutely necessary to sustain a lasting relationship, in my experience, many practitioners immediately want to go to forgiveness before they've learned to process anger in a skillful way. If I can't process anger in a relationship, as a way to let me know that I have not felt heard or felt uh, taken care of, if I immediately want to just go and forgive that person, um, then I'm not going to set boundaries in our life. And our culture subtly does a lot of damage and harm to us. Very many women that I work 
with have been discouraged in their family systems from feeling anger. And so in their relationships, they don't have the emotional underlying energy to allow them to say, this is not okay. And many men like myself were disempowered of feeling sadness. And so I want to, when I feel sad and hurt in a relationship, immediately want to forgive as a way not to feel sad. So forgiveness is absolutely necessary, but first we need to feel the natural primary emotions that arise and take the actions that the emotions are signaling. Anger is very different from uh, the kind of resentment where it's a story. And sadness is different than self-pity, which is a story of why am I always the one that's hurt. Emotions are energies somatic that need to be felt. And then as inner child manifestations, we need to know how to address the emotions and alleviate them through proper regulated actions and then forgive. I don't disagree. <laughs> <laughs> I don't disagree at all. I, I, um, we can misuse everything, including mindfulness, including concentration, including forgiveness. Uh, so much so that some of the Western Buddhist psychologists can kind of coined the term spiritual bypass mm-hmm. when we're using our spiritual practices to bypass something rather than to heal it, rather than to awaken to it or from it. And so forgiveness couldn't be used as a bypass of anger or sadness. Concentration can be used as a bypass of emotion. So uh, what he's saying makes perfect sense, and I, I hope it makes sense to you. Um, not an encouragement not to forgive, but to not, not skip feeling what needs to be felt. Hmm. So, um, I think we could, we could keep going with this. Maybe the last thing that I want to say is this importance of, of community, of friendship, and uh, especially friendship with practitioners. It takes effort. So you actually have to put some effort into getting some phone numbers and making the calls and, and uh, <coughs> making connections and saying like, Hey, let's let's hang out before class or after class or you know, I'm I'm going to this retreat this weekend. Do you want to come and it doesn't ha- you know, my experience of coming to classes like this is that it doesn't happen right away. And then also if you're new to a community like this, you'll see sometimes it'll even feel clicky because you'll see all of those groups of like, oh, those those five homies over there, those five homies over there, that girl gang over there, that mm. And then you'll feel like, but I'm not, like, this is like a clicky sangha. <laughs> where's, where's my click? I love, one of the things that I get all the time is like, oh, do you have to be tattooed? <laughs> to like, go to your sangha? Yeah, it's like, yeah. if you actually look around, it's like, there's not that many tattooed people here, except for this guy. <laughs> <coughs> and me. Um... But that effort of saying, like, actually, I want this in my life. I want to commit. I want to take refuge. I want to wake up. Part of it is the relational piece. It's not just our meditation practice. It's who we are getting real with, who we are sharing with, and who are we associating with that's going to maybe remind us about mindfulness or forgiveness or compassion, and who's going to maybe hold the space and not just give us advice. And then also Buddhists can be the worst at that. 
I've had so many people say it's not very Bo-, like the insulting thing of like that's not very Buddhist of you. <laughs> Why don't you just be mindful of that rather than like uh, just holding in, just being like, okay, like yeah, you're pissed. I have room mm. for you to be pissed. Rather than jumping right to, it sounds like you need some. You know, here, let me yeah. give you some unsolicited dharma. <laughs> let me hit you across the face with some dharma okay. while you're suffering. Did you do a six step? <laughs> yes. Call your sponsor. <laughs> I just wanted to say uh, for myself that um, one of the ways we know that we do not have enough secure attachments in our lives is if there is any spike of addiction or compulsive behavior. Addiction and compulsive behaviors are always attempts to auto-regulate emotions rather than to rely on other people to help soothe and calm us. So the person who comes home after a hard day's work and feels lonely will eat compulsively as a way to create that feeling that there is other people in their lives. The person who at night shops on Amazon compulsively or who drinks, these are always essentially uh, examples of people who are, are trying unconsciously to replace other people or to make up for the lack of secure connections. All healing involves the vulnerable disclosure of our feelings to others. There's no other way that we can do it. So I hope that you will uh, continue on this wonderful journey of reaching out and making connections with others. Josh Corda has a podcast on uh, Podbean. What's yes, it called? Yeah, because you York. look up Dharma Punks NYC. Dharma Punks NYC. So if you like uh, what you're hearing, he's um, a master at uh, translating this stuff into the, the neuroscience, the sociology, the psychology, um, as well as the meditative uh, interventions for the healing that we're seeking. So check him out. And if you're in New York City, go sit with him. He also has a new book that just came out about a couple months ago now called Unsubscribe. Is that right? Unfollow. Unsubscribe. Unsubscribe. <laughs> Unsub- buy his book, unsubscribe, and unfollow him on mm-hmm. Facebook. <laughs> Absolutely right, no, Instagram, right. Something like that. I don't know. Um, thank you for being here. We're here every Monday night. We do ask for a $15 donation for the class.